This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, this is AC. The Doc Project will not be coming back in the fall. So this summer, we're bringing you some of our favorite episodes since the show began back in 2015. This episode originally aired in June of 2020. And later that year, it won the Narrative Audio Award at the Imagine Native Festival. You know, as a, as a journalist, we always get people to tell us their deepest, darkest secrets, right? We always push them to the edge of their story. And by wanting to share my story, I'm worried that I'm not going to do it justice. But it's not just my story. It's the story of thousands of other children who have gone through a very similar experience to me who may not have the opportunity or the platform to share share their experiences. And having, having a lot of um, friends who were scooped, I want to be able to um, be a voice for those who, who don't have this opportunity. Scooped. That's shorthand for the people who were part of the 60s scoop. When Canadian authorities separated Indigenous children from their parents and cultures and placed them in primarily white homes. Kim, she was one of those kids. My name is Kim Wheeler. That is my married name. Before that, I had another married name, which was Zervogel, and a lot of people knew me as Kim Zervogel throughout my career. But my adopted name was Kim Bell, and my birth name was Ruby Linda Briere. That's a lot of names. And when you have that many names and you go through your life with all those names, you kind of question who you really are. Kim spent decades trying to find an answer to that question. And for her, it keeps coming back to the 60s scoop. I'm AC Rowe. This is The Doc Project. For the 60s scoop survivors, there wasn't a single dedicated commission like there was for the residential school survivors. Instead, those kids, they're adults now, were part of a multi-million dollar class action lawsuit that the federal government settled in 2017. To be part of that settlement, people were invited to apply. So the deadline to fill out the form is August 30th of 2019. It is now August 29th at 8.05 p.m. And I'm about to open my browser on my computer for the first time. And look at these forms. As she got ready to apply, Kim, the eternal journalist, decided to document the whole thing. This impossible process of trying to explain what happened to her in a few paragraphs and ticked boxes all with the hope that someone in a faraway office will read her application and see her. Kim's going to take it from here. She'll start at the beginning. I was 13 days old when I was placed into my adopted family. They were foster parents, and I was their 51st foster child. I have three sisters on my adopted family side and a brother. Um, my brother is also adopted, but he is not 
my blood brother, but he is also indigenous. He was actually the one to say that he wanted to adopt me because he wanted another baby in the family who looked like him. I guess I didn't start feeling like I was adopted until probably into my early teens when um, my mother said something. Oh, my God. She said something at a Christmas morning. I was about, I think I was about 15 years old. And she said, I want a picture of my daughters in front of the tree. And my three white sisters got up to sit in front of the tree. I went to make a move. And she looked at me and said, no, no, no. I just want Barb, Arlene, and Kathy. That was the first time I ever felt like I didn't really belong in this family. I was 24 years old before I started having meaningful contact with Indigenous people. Across the hall from the journalism program was another program called the Native Communications Program. The people who were going through that program, they saw me in the hall and would talk to me, would say hi. And I remember one time these two boys, they sat me down and and we, you know, we were talking, and they go, oh, do you ever go to Around Dance? Have you ever been to a powwow? Have you ever done this? And I'm like, no, no, no. And they're like, well, where are you from? I'm like, well, I'm from Winnipeg. They're like, no, where's your family from? What they meant was, where was my First Nation? Well, I of course, I didn't know, right? So then I told them that I was adopted out. But I remember getting really emotional with them and and saying, you know, like, I just, I don't know any of this. So I'm sitting in my treehouse office because it's, our sunroom on the second floor of our house. It's, you know, it's kind of like when you were a child and you had a tree house and you sat up in your tree house and you, you spied on everybody going by. And and that's how I feel when I, when I sit up here in this office. And so I find it very inspirational to sit up in, in our tree house office and, um, and watch what's going on around me. But tonight, I have to fill out my 60 scoop forms. I probably started identifying with that term about 10 to 15 years ago. And I realized, oh my God, like I was part of the 60 scoop because I was adopted into a white family. I lost my language. I lost my culture. And my adoptive parents bought into the government line of killing the Indian in the child. And we, as 60 Scoop babies, now get to share our trauma and get a settlement. So quite a few years ago, one of my friends who is also adopted, uh, you know, called me up and said that there is a group of 
people from the 60 Scoop who are putting together, they're getting together and they're talking about uh, launching a class action lawsuit. And they invited me to come along to the meetings and and uh, man, I never went. And I just thought, like, I don't... I felt like I just didn't have any expertise or anything to contribute to what, you know, what they were trying to do. So I just kind of watched everything develop from afar. And when it, you know, it came to applying, I thought, what if I'm not eligible? And I dreaded it. I like I don't, you know, I don't want to go and relive all the stuff that I relive in my head all the time, anyways. I had a I had a I had a really difficult difficult time wanting to write it down. So um, I'm going to open my browser and go through these questions. Um, I'm going to share this experience with you because I feel it's important. I feel it's important that. Canadians get an understanding of what this journey has been like for me. And just to shed some understanding on this experience. So so let's get started. Let's fill out this form. Let's open this browser. In my early 20s, when I got pregnant with my first child, was when I decided that I wanted to find out who my birth family was. And at first I just wanted non-identifying information, which is basically medical history. And so I called up the post-adoption registry and I asked them for the application form. And so the guy took down my information and about half an hour later, my phone rang, and it was the uh, the post-adoption registry. And they said, you're going to want to fill these forms out. And I went, what do you mean? He said, I, ca- I can't tell you more than that, and I'm already saying too much, but you want to fill these forms out. And in that moment, I knew somebody had registered to find me. So I filled my forms out immediately and I sent them in and like things just went crazy. And two weeks later, I was meeting my siblings and, you know, we exchanged our stories, the story that I had been told by my adopted mother and the story that the sisters knew. My adopted mother told me the day she remembers getting me. And she told the story that there was this beautiful Indian woman who was really well-dressed with white boots who handed her baby over to me. And, and she said, please take care of her and please love her. And, of course, my adopted mother said, yes, we'll take very good care of her. And and then she she walked out with me in her arms. Um, the 
birth siblings tell that story a little bit different. So after I told them that story, they went, no, 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 your mother never dressed like that. She didn't have those clothes. That wasn't her. You know, that that wasn't the reality. The reality of the story was that my birth mother got pregnant with me while her husband was in jail. And he said when he got out, that baby better not be there. So she gave me up for adoption. And now it's on to your personal story, which is optional. Would you like to share your story? Sharing your story can help us evaluate your claim if records cannot be located. If you agree to share your story, you can give permission for the Healing Foundation to archive it with the stories of other 60 Scoop survivors. This would mean that your story would be publicly available today and for future generations. My birth sisters told me basically right off the hop, probably within the first 10 minutes of meeting them, that our mother was not alive anymore. That she had, I guess there's a question of whether she overdosed or whether she took her own life on, I believe it was New Year's Eve of 1989. Um, which was the same New Year's Eve that I finally told someone for the first time in my life that that I had been sexually abused by my adopted father. So while I was going through a really painful night, so were my birth sisters. They were going through a painful night because they had just lost their mother. When they told me, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't sad. I was just kind of numb like okay well now I don't get to meet the woman who gave me birth <laughs> the reunion with the birth family what did not go exactly well it was okay for a bit um, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma in that family even though there were some good experiences, there was also a lot of negative experiences. And eventually I had to stop talking to the birth siblings. For as long as I can remember, my adopted family would tell strangers I was adopted. They would tell them on buses, in school meetings, in shopping malls, at parks, you name it. I guess I did this because I was brown and they were white, and they felt a need to explain that fact. But by doing so, it was so incredibly damaging because then I never quite felt accepted by this family. My adoptive parents made me feel ashamed to be First Nations. Back then, we called it Indian. They would drive both my adopted brother, Brian, and I down to Logan and Maine in Winnipeg, a well-known strip of bars that Indigenous people frequented. They'd point out drunks and tell us if we didn't pull up our socks and work hard, we would end up just like those Indians down on Main Street. All my life, my mother kept my hair short and choppy. 
If my hair got down to my collar, she would nag me and say mean things to me like, you look so sloppy, long hair doesn't suit you, you don't look clean. Until I couldn't stand it anymore, and I would go get it cut short again. The first thing I did when I moved out of my parents' house was grow my hair long. Many things happened in this family at the hands of the mother and father. Sexual abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse. And not just once or twice, but for years. And they did everything they could to make sure we were worn down, submissive, and ashamed. Years later, when my brother and I were in our early 30s, we were finally able to talk to one another about growing up in this family. I confessed to him that it wasn't until... I was in my late 20s that I was able to say the word Indian without cringing. We didn't know our language. We didn't know about smudging. We had never been to a powwow or a round dance. We didn't own anything cultural whatsoever. So we didn't fit in with this white family and we didn't fit in with the First Nations world either until we changed that for ourselves. I found my way back through journalism, and I know a lot of people who uh, were adopted out went into journalism or filmmaking or some other form of storytelling. And I don't know if it's that way for them, but for me, journalism gave me a safe space to ask questions about about the culture that I may not have asked otherwise. To go into those spaces, to, you know, be a part of a feast, be, you know, go to a powwow, go to festivals and conferences and other places where there are, you know, pockets of culture and more information about the history of our people in this country and and the past and the future of our, our people in this country. I could go there as an observer and take it all in and learn about it. And so that, you know, that really helped me connect back to culture. I credit my career with saving that part of me. And if I had taken a different career path, I don't know if I ever would have found my way back. It has been a painful journey, one that could have been avoided if the government had done the right thing in the first place. And now I'm expected to sum up a lifetime of pain in a handful of paragraphs. The main idea behind the 60 Scoop settlement is to talk about loss of culture. So I'm ending my story with this. I could have spent the last year writing about my loss of culture and all the things that I missed out on, but time is tight and I've cried enough. Once I, once I pushed send on the application, I worried that you know, whoever was on the other side receiving my application was felt this was a legitimate adoption, that my birth mother gave me up for adoption and I wasn't going to be part of the 60 scoop. Um, so I worried that, that, they, that they wouldn't 
um, wouldn't include me in that group. And again, you know, it goes back to the, you know, where do I belong? Because if I wasn't part of the 60s scoop, then, you know, I didn't belong there either. Um, so I'm making a documentary, a radio doc, okay. on my 60 Scoop thing, nice. and I want to include you. All right, I love you. You're not even the best. So, tell me what your name is. My name is David Clayton Herman. And where are you from? I am originally from Atikamegw, Whitefish Lake, Alberta, born in Edmonton. And so earlier today, we were talking about our settlement and how I went to the last day to apply. <laughs> and when did you apply for yours? Well, because I'm like really, really white now, I applied right away. And so you got your letter, right? I got my letter of confirmation. What happened when, like, when you got it? What did you think? It was like life-changing. It's like, oh my God, it feels like I have good credit and I got a bank loan. No, but actually, be ser- <laughs> you want me to be serious. Yeah. I'm joking. Okay. Well, I was happy. I want to invest it in myself, do something really positive that I would have done in the past. I mean, I feel like all the, for myself, the 60 Scoop survivors wasted a lot of time looking for their identity. It's like a little bit of a compensation for that time loss, which wasn't my fault that I was taken away from my culture to, well, I went out and sought my culture and I'm glad I did. Like. That was something that could have been taught from day one, but we were denied. So in that way, I, I feel like the, the settlement is justified. And yeah, and I shared with you earlier that um, that I hadn't received my letter yet, oh, yeah. and I was a little worried. I was I a little, I was concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, well, actually, <gasps> it came today. Is not the universe <laughs> is weird? Yeah. And I so figured, I but, figured uh, but let, let me tell you. So I got home and I yes, checked through okay. the through the mail and I was oh. like, Collectiva. Nice. Man, who do I owe money to? That's <laughs> the company. The that, company. That's the company that's representing us. It's yeah. Just, so I opened it and it says, "Dear Sixty Scoop applicant." We are pleased to confirm that your individual payment application has been re- form has been reviewed and you have been confirmed to be eligible to be an eligible class member. And I've been approved for an individual payment. The adoptees are going to get anywhere between $25,000 and $50,000, depending on how many people apply, depending on how many people are eligible, and nobody knows what that amount is going to be yet. And for a lot of us, it's really, you know, it's really not about the money. Like, yes, of course, we can all, everybody can use an extra $25,000, right? Um, But I call it blood money. It's blood money. You know? I'm getting paid for 
basically the loss of my childhood. At the end of January, I got invited to New Orleans, um, the indigenous word for New Orleans being Balbancha, for the International Indigenous Music Summit. And we had to go around the room and introduce ourselves. And, you know, again, as it's, you know, people are standing up and they're speaking in their language. And, you know, they clearly have a strong connection to who they are where they were raised, who their families are, you know, what their lineage is. <laughs> and and it's a big circle. Like, it took eight hours to go around the circle. And as it's coming to me, I'm like, what am I going to say? How am I going to introduce myself? And so finally I stood up and I said, um, my name is Kim Wheeler. My maiden name was Belle. I was born Ruby Linda Briere, but I'm actually a Bolio. I was part of the 60s scoop. And uh, towed the government line to kill the Indian in the child. Clearly they failed. And there was this huge applause. Yeah, that's who I am. (laughs) Kim Wheeler. That doc was produced by Kim with me, AC Rowe. Special thanks to Kim Crawford from Music is the Medicine in London, Ontario, for her recording from the International Indigenous Music Summit. This episode originally aired in June of 2020. Since then, Kim reconnected with her younger sister, Patricia Briere, earlier this summer, along with some extended family. Patricia also received the settlement. Patricia used her money to help her eldest son buy a home, where she lives part-time with him, to help care for her grandchild. This episode of The Doc Project was produced by Allison Cook, Kevin Ball, and me. Our digital producers were Althea Manassin and Tahiat Mahboub. Our senior producer was Julia Poggle. Special thanks this week to our intern, Michaela Van Kooten. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.